Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, the shirtless bear fighter. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. This podcast is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Sequot. Go to Sequot.org to get the best in comic books and pop culture's news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, Sequart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Yeah, uh, as our listeners can hear, I'm a bit throatier today. Today I'm <laughs> cosplaying as the son of Tom Waits and a peck of Marlboros. <laughs> uh, listeners who are attending rock concerts, please guard your vocal cords. Or alternatively, throw them to the winds unless you're podcasting the next day. So, what, what's on the docket? What's the news for today? Evil clouds are gathering over Northampton. Oh, they're remaking that Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer movie. Worse, Tom. There is an evil cackling in the air. And green fire was spotted uh, uh, flashing through the British uh, skyline. Oh, the, yes. that Green Lantern movie with the evil cloud. Alan Moore is casting an evil spell. Although, is it really an evil spell when the target is deserved? I'm not sure. No, no, no. Basically, he's using his magic for good ends. What's happening is that uh, it was recently announced that there is going to be a remake, I suppose we could call it a remake at this point, of uh, Watchmen. A TV adaptation, or, as it were. Well, this is the thing that I didn't understand. It's going to be a TV adaptation, but it wasn't clear to me if the adaptation is going to be based on the books or on Snyder's movie. No, 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 like, no, no. What? They're talking about doing 12 episodes on HBO, and right now it's still in the talking phase. This TV creator guy, uh, what's his name? Okay, so, well, I was about to get to that. So, this is news that would not please anyone regardless, right? Uh, I, I don't think that Watchmen needs a TV show, no. but... Uh, the writer, the showrunner that was announced for it is Damon Lindelof. Yes, from the award-winning Ultimate Wolverine vs. Hulk. Let's start the list, shall we? Okay, Damon Lindelof has been involved in such TV series as Lost and films such as Prometheus, Cowboys and Aliens, Star Trek Into Darkness, and World War Z, and most recently... Tomorrowland. Quality stuff, all of them. Oh, this show is going to be so good, Tom. No, no, no. To be fair, some people really like that show we recently did about TV dinners or something, The Leftovers. The Leftovers. <laughs> TV <laughs> dinners. <laughs> I just got that. I'm sorry. But people, it recently ended and people really, really liked it. So, and that was, unlike those other things, his TV show, as far as I know, these other well, like Lost, it's part of a writer's room, and all those te- and all those movies do have a lot of people working within them. That's me being nice because uh, Prometheus is one of the worst written movies in recent history. Which the only top is Alien Covenant, which is somehow even stupider. Well, you're a film critic, so I-, I did actually want to pick your brain on this. Isn't it the other way around, where if you're doing a film, it's usually like a screenplay writer. Whereas if it's a TV show, every episode might have a different writer. It depends on the writer, it depends on the prestige and the size of the project. Because when you have big blockbuster type thing, like Star Trek Into Darkness, like Cowboys and Aliens, even if you're the credited guy, usually, usually, you will have other people coming in, changing things. You'll have the star Mm. of the show just saying, well, I don't want to do this. He'll bring his own 
shadow writers to rewrote the script so he'll look better in his eyes or whatever. So when it comes to those big blockbuster projects, most likely the blame is spread around. Yeah. Uh, same with the TV shows. But like you said, those projects aren't good. Oof. And Prometheus was a thing that he defended. He defended the script for Prometheus in interviews. So... Yeah, it's, that's well, also that's I mean, also let's let's be realistic here in that for all that people may enjoy Lost, I don't think anybody would hold it up as like quality writing. Lost was a mystery box thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure Damon Lindelof was working with J.J. Abrams and that they came up with the whole mystery box concept together. I feel like you know the prospect of a TV series of Watchmen was something that maybe when they announced that it was going to be a movie, we might have been considering, like, this would have been so much better as a 12-episode miniseries on HBO if you could give it something like the Game of Thrones treatment, where you at least try to show f- some kind of fidelity to the source material. The fact that it, they gave it to Damon Lindelof suggests that this is more about maintaining the license or something along those lines where it's just about, you know, the money-grubbing aspect. Lindelof so is apparently a Watchmen friend from Days of Old, so... If he's a Watchmen fan, like he's a Star Trek fan, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. My opinion is this. Fidelity to me is not really that important in adaptation because I already have the source material. Most of my favorite adaptations are those that change stuff considerably, like History of Violence, one of my favorite comic book movies of all time. The last third of it has nothing whatsoever to do with the graphic novel. Same thing with uh, L.A. Confidential, my favorite, my top five favorite movie of all time, which changed the book considerably and cut a lot of subplots and corners and the timelines so that's fine. You already have the source material. My problem is, A, we don't need it. We don't need a Watchmen adaptation. And B, I don't think someone like Lindelof has anything to add and improve upon Watchmen because he's not a Watchmen-like writer. When you look at his the stuff he wrote, he really likes to do the whole, uh, like you said, mystery box. He likes to leave things open. He likes questions. He likes open-ended. That's the very opposite of Watchmen, which is one of the most meticulously written books of all time. Watchmen is all about paying attention to every little detail and making sure that everything fits. When, when we talk about it like this, I'm saying he shouldn't ever adapt an Alan Moore script. Damon Lindelof is the guy you turn to when you, when you want to adapt a Morrison script, right? Mm. Someone who, who works in ambiguity and not, and not in like cold, hard facts. Which is yeah. the Alan Moore thing. Yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree. I, the issue of fidelity is less important to me only in terms of, you know, the, the overall question you have to ask yourself about any adaptation is why does this thing exist, right? The example that I always go to is the world did not need a live-action Avatar The Last Airbender, certainly not from M. Night Shyamalan. It didn't have the prospect of adding anything to the original that could be considered like a quality contribution. By the same token, you know, we had the Zack Snyder movie. I'm not a huge fan of that movie. I tolerate it, I suppose. It has its ups and downs. That said, I don't understand what a TV show can give. You know, what is it that we should hope to get from them that we didn't get from Snyder? Especially when you consider that Lindelof is kind of like Snyder as a writer. 
they both tend to go for like the very dark, uh, you know, these slogs, these passionless. Well, Snyder is not a writer, right? He just directs. I think. I yeah, but I think that the well, the big complaint about the movies that he's put out so far is that his creative vision as a director tends to be very, very pronounced, right? Like, there's a reason that you have all this slow-mo and grit and dark no, no, blue. No subtlety to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I don't understand why we need a TV show from a writer who has similar sensibilities based on stuff like Into Darkness and, you know, stuff along those lines. I'm not sure what the appeal is here. Uh, and yeah. I can watch it. Probably not. Uh, give it to David Lynch. It'll be interesting. That, you see, that would be an example of an adaptation that would at least do something unexpected. different. <laughs> yeah, unexpected, different, and, you know, at least then, I feel like also there's an issue of that it, then it would be interesting to compare the two. You know what I mean? Like an adaptation in an ideal situation, when we're talking about like the best possible adaptations that you can make, they should be the ones that don't necessarily contradict the source material, but that supply a different perspective. Like that they're, you know, David Lynch's Watchmen, you could at least say, let's talk about the book and David Lynch's Watchmen and all the differences and the similarities and the parallels. And, you know, there's... There's stuff to talk about there. There's stuff to dissect. Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is just going to be a mystery box that's going to drag out for 12, 15, 20 episodes, however long it's going to last. He's going to throw in a whole bunch of conspiracy theory nonsense that's not going to pan out. The visual design is probably going to follow Snyder more than it does the book. I, I don't see, you know, there's nothing to this news that gives me any reason to look forward to it. Any other news? Speaking of looking forward to things, though, okay, let's flip things around and talk about the September 2017 previews. Okay. What do you want to start Ooh. with? Let's start with Marvel, if only so that we can sweep them under the rug and forget that they ever existed. Marvel Legacy Number 1 by Jason Aaron and Esad Ribic, also known as the next bridge Marvel would like to sell you. Uh, I was actually talking about this with former podcast guest Aviv Tzipin a few days ago, and it was just like... I had this moment of how many times can you hear the same crap and watch them drop the ball before you give up? That's more interesting to me because the solicitation for Marvel Legacy number one is talking about a new dawn and hope and light and blah, blah, blah. And like, wasn't that the premise of the it's, heroic It's the age? age of Aquarius, John. It's the age of Aquarius. No, no, no. Think about it. This was the exact premise of, you remember the heroic age in 2010? yeah. yeah. Same thing, right? New new characters, and it's going to be brand new, and everything's going to be better. And what did that lead to? Secret Wars and more bullshit. So I don't know that there's, you know, this my, is just My nonsense. big problem with it, which I wrote about in my Hebrew language blog, is this. Rebirth, which I thought was a garbage story and morally indefensible for its treatment of, speaking of, the Watchmen characters and universe and whatever, was a $3.80 page book which signified one major thing for the readers. DC is willing to give you this lost leader because they think you'll come back. And we didn't really like DC's books over the last few years, but it works for them. The readers are there. The readers are interested. Over the last two years, not a single rebirth book has been canceled. Yeah. Marvel is selling you 
a $6.64 page book, most likely about 15 pages of which I'm guessing will be not non-comics. There will be an interview and sketches or whatever because it's Marvel. Yeah, probably. So what they're saying is we're not really sure you'll be there for the rest of it and we want to take as much money as we can the first go around. And Jason yeah. Aaron, he's a good writer. He's a good artist. But I just... In this situation, I just don't trust the book to be worth anything because, because it does just feel like a money plunger. And Hell no. factor in that they're shipping in it with all those Marvel Generation one-shots. It's, it's, they're basically telling the reader there's like 10 one-shots, right? Yeah. And all of them are $5. DC, mm-hmm. DC told the readers, if you want to get into uh, the Rebirth, you have to pay $3. Marvel is telling the readers, if you want to get into Legacy, into the new Marvel Universe, $56. Yeah. And that's all the difference. Yeah, they can't help getting in their own way. That's the bottom line here. And uh, screw Legacy, screw Generations. I strongly urge our listeners to avoid it. If you feel bad about missing the event, just wait six months. And whatever Axel Alonso says, whatever lie he spun about Marvel not doing events for the next 18 months, yeah, let's see if that sticks. If you do insist on uh, giving Marvel money for some reason or another, their trade department is up to some interesting stuff. Including the complete Werewolf by Night. Which is such... Uh, are you familiar with Werewolf by Night? The 1970s horror title about a guy who's a werewolf by uh, night? In, in the abstract, I keep getting him confused with J. Jonah Jameson's son. No, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not man-wolf. It's werewolf by night. And it, it's, such, it's such a wonderful, crazy, stupid name. Because what else is going to be? A werewolf by mid-afternoon? A werewolf by dusk? Uh, it is part of an interesting lineup of 1970s horror Marvel titles in general. They're also reprinting uh, the first part of the complete tomb of Dracula. And something that is interesting to me as a process nerd, they're reprinting the Marvel black and white horror magazine formats, which is something... And if you want an example to what Marvel in the 70s were doing right that Marvel today can do, in the 70s, they, they looked at the world around them and they saw, oh, horror is a very big thing right now. People like horror, people like black and white exploitation stuff. Let's yeah. work with it. And now Marvel is so insular that they would never even think about doing something as simple as looking at what succeeds around them and working with it. Being shameless, right? Being shameless, which is fine if you're amazing comic comic company looking at trends saying let's use that trend marvel can do it now the only thing they know is superheroes yeah and it's all they know how to do and it's also not like to be frank even that thing that they know how to do they're not exactly doing it well these days mm. now look you at know. look at this tomb of dracula okay you have yeah. 19 issues tomb of dracula 1 to 15 and dracula leaves 1 to 4 for 40 dollars which is fine and you have work by gary conway archie goodwin Garner Fox, Marv Wolfman, Gene Colan, Rich Buckler, Neil Adams, Jim Starling, John Buscema, Mike Plug. Legends. Yeah, legends. And, and you can have that, or you can have the modern Marvel Universe, which is, it has talent in it, but they just don't let the talent express itself in any, mm. in any interesting or particular way. Yeah. Uh, 
Marv Wolfman, of course, also writes Werewolf by Night, which he had to, right? Of course. Of course. Anything else from Marvel? Uh, just two items of interest. Uh, I did want to mention Runaways number one by Rainbow oh. Rowell and Chris Anka. Yeah. Um, look, all due respect to Rowell, you know, uh, uh, she's a novelist, she has her fan base, I'm not denying that, but it's a bit cheeky of her to start her run by bringing back Gertrude York. She hasn't earned that. Well, and Va- to be completely honest, like as much as I loved Vaughn's Runaways, the time to capitalize on the Runaways' popularity came and went while Marvel was still busy trying to figure out how to make mutants viable after Wanda's magic vagina ran amok in House of M. So I don't really think that that's going to work out. Um, I They do have a TV show coming up, so capitalizing on that makes sense. Uh, the problem with the Runaways, it always felt like lighting in a bottle. Nobody aside from Brian K. Vaughn made it work. And you had big, big names and talented people. You had Josh Whedon, you had Catherine Emmett, and they throw the, mm-hmm. their golden lot at it, and it just didn't work. It's, it's like when nobody for nobody aside from Ellen Moore could really ever do a Swamp Thing right after Ellen Moore did it. He was well, so- you don't even... You don't even have to go that far, just in terms of Marvel, you know. No one has ever really managed to make the Young Avengers compelling after uh, Alan Eyberg was done with them. Well, was, I, I'm part of the crowd that prefers the Gillen McKelvey one. Well, but Gillen and McKelvey didn't really... There are those characters slash concepts that are, unlike the big icons, they are limited in their applications, and they aren't something that's easily translatable from writer to writer, from artist to artist. Yeah, I just, like, this particular story annoyed me because, you know, to to come and, and try and restart this book by undoing, like, the high point of Vaughn's run, as if that's supposed no, to wait, automatically... Gertrude... Oh, right, she died in Vaughn's run, right. Yeah, that... Someone else not died only... in the imminent run. No, 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 but not only did she... Like, that's the thing. Not only did Gert die in Vaughn's run, she died at the... Like, that was the, the climax of the entire run. Her death was like the, the last high note that Vaughn put the series on before he left. So for her to come in and the first thing that you see in the solicitation is, you know, it's the return of Gert and we're going to reveal how Gert is coming back. And it's like, I, I don't think that that's kosher. You know, like oh. you could have built towards it if she wanted to really like, I mean, we're assuming here that Roll is going to stick around for longer than 12 issues, which is a bit of a stretch. But um even if she is, you know, that's something that you build towards. You don't, I don't know her. I don't know her reputation. I don't know how good she is as a comic book writer. It, it seems a little cheap. I would also say and add that to launch Runaways with a big name writer from outside the comic book medium in the middle of Legacy Generation, bad idea because this is a book that should be first on your line of solicitations, but because of Generation, it's number 14 or something. Yeah, but I feel like that would be... You just... Because people that might be brought into the Marvel Universe with that book, supposedly Rainbow Roll readers are young, they're eager, they're of the nerdish variety, but they're coming in in the middle of an event, which is the worst time to enter a universe. I mean, you're saying that, but when was that ever not the case? For Marvel? For Marvel. Yeah, exactly. Before Maximum Security. 
Exactly. Like any time that they have marketed a book with a reader, with a writer, sorry, who could potentially draw audiences from outside of comics, it has always been in the middle of some event or other. Tanahisi Coates came on at the beginning of uh, not Secret Empire. What was the one before that? Uh, I think he came after Avengers vs. X-Men. No, 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 no. Uh, no, a little bit after that. There was something, uh, some secret, kind of... Secret, something with secrets, I don't know. I mean, the I fact that we can't War. even remember. After Secret War. Right. You know, so clearly that that has been a problem. You know, it's sort of a side effect of the perpetual event system, where if you're always having events and crossovers and books that by their very nature, you have to put at the top of the list, then yeah, any new writer, any new initiative is going to get drowned out. The perpetual event system sounds like a 1970s prog rock band. That or like a big red button that has... I I don't know. Marvel. What's the other thing that uh, took your fancy? Yeah, well, not so much fancy. sort of like a sad note. Uh, It seems that Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur may be ending at issue 23. Sad but inevitable. Well, for Marvel nowadays, 23 is a long run. And Amy Reader basically seems to be returning to doing uh, Rocket Girl full-time, which good good for the readers of Rocket Girl, who've been waiting on that second arc for two years now. There can be only one, Tom. Yep. Uh, DC? DC, what have you got? Uh, well, I didn't know I wanted it until I got it. Dusterly and Motley number one. Oh, God! Written by Garth Ennis and Morissette. That's, uh, the last of the Hanna-Barbera line with a modern-day version <sighs> of Dusterly and Motley in their flying machine. Written oh, by Garth Ennis. It's, it's a red-letter day for the good folk of Unlikely Stan as they start to power up their first atomic reactor. But after pushing the wrong button, the ultra-rare radioactive element Unstabilium has been released into the atmosphere. Now it's up to pilot Lieutenant Colonel Richard Dick Asterly and his navigator Captain Dudley Matt Mueller to save the day. Will they safely complete their mission or are things about to get a little wacky? I'm so glad that Ennis's subtlety is improving the older he gets. <laughs> oh, Sean. It's, it's beautiful. It's a, oh, beautiful. God. It's a thing of beauty. Uh, drawn by Morissette, one of those modern artists who are good but have only one name for some reason. It's actually Alanis, but don't tell anybody. I, I will not. It, it would be ironic. Anything exactly. else from DC? Um, well, not really. Snyder and Albuquerque's All-Star Batman is concluding... They have a lot of Batman one-shots, I think, part of that metal event. Metal days or something, I don't know what it's called. It's just, and, it's just uh, metal, throw the horns. One one sad fact, and I, I checked to be absolutely sure, we're down to two Vertigo titles and both are miniseries. Isn't, Savage isn't things. Astro City also a Vertigo title nowadays? It is, but it's not on the solicitation. Mm, must be taking so, a break. September has Savage Things, which ends the month after. American Way is halfway through. It's a six-issue run. So I don't know what what's going on over there. But um, uh, it, it doesn't look good. All good things must end. I guess. But you know where the good times are? Image. At Image. So many wonderful number ones. Uh, so let's start with Angelic Number One. This is by Simon Spurrier and Casper Wingard. Now, I this is going to sound funny, but I think that Image has an image problem. 
they they need to figure out this the thing that's holding them back is that they need to figure out a better way for their previews to express what makes each book they put out unique because angelic you know the premise reads a lot like autumn lands it's about these animal hybrids with human intelligence who are having adventures in the ruins of mankind uh now autumn lands the, the on height Octile right animosity something like that and yeah well animosity is running that way too uh now angelic you know there are two positive points here which is first of all Autumn Lands is on hiatus. So if we're going to have another series like that in the meantime, sure, whatever. Uh, also, you know, what do we always say about Simon Spurrier? It's worth giving him a try. You never know if he'll stick the landing. He's always, we've talked about it, right? When we talked about the Spire and Cry Havoc, he's always almost there. Yeah. He's like, you, you, he can see greatness. He can reach out, but I don't think he's quite touching it yet. But one day, I'm sure one day we'll get the great... Simon Sperrier's story. Uh, this might be it. I don't know. It might be it. Uh, you know, Wiener, he... Wienergrad is a good artist and he works in a quite appealing style for me. Yeah. Quantum Alley Cats and Techno Dolphins, which... Sure. Why, why not? Uh, Retcon number one by Matt yes, Nixon and Toby yes. Cypress, which is ballsy as hell to solicit like this. The reboot of a comic book miniseries that never existed begin with this all new, all different number one Time to travel back and jumping on this comic while it was new. That's it. That's Tom, it. That's ballsy. It is ballsy as hell. Let me ask you something. You you know a little bit more about comic book history than I do, relatively speaking. This I'm actually amazed that it took this long for someone to get a high concept like this approved, a reboot of a mini like very meta about the comic book industry, right? I'm a reboot sure. of I'm sure there was something like this. Like, can you think of anything? I, if you if you take jokes into account, the time when milk and cheese uh, did four number ones in a row. No, no, no. But I'm talking about a series that took as its premise the idea that it's a retcon of a reboot oh, of a oh, series. Oh, 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 Sean, Sean, the Sentry. Um, the Sentry, the Sentry. Yeah, and yeah. They, the they, they did a whole lot of work about saying, "Oh, it's the last." Stanley yeah, stuff, and some people even believed it for like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, they they ended up misusing it horribly, but th- yeah, that but is the original true. miniseries worked for what it was. Yeah. So, but I am interested in this. You know, it's I'm I'm here for meta comics. I'm fine with that. Okay. Uh, what else? The Realm Number One by Seth M. Peck and Jeremy Hahn. This is uh, again, you know, the problem of distinction. It's a fantasy book about magic that overruns our world. Um, not, uh, not an unfamiliar premise because birthright, right? But these are creators with a bit of talent. I'm willing to roll the dice on them for the first issue. I just, again, like I always keep coming back to, there has to be another way to do this because this isn't working. The description that we get for the realm is functionally very similar to what's happening in birthright right now. And that series isn't even over yet. So I don't, you know, there's, and, and there's this, and there's also, right, uh, Scales and Scoundrels, number one, which is Sebastian Gurner and Galad's book, also talking about, you know, this fantasy realm and, and the, all Yeah, these Scales and Scoundrels seems to be more child-friendly events. It could be. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I, 
I'm not sure what the solution is here, but there needs to be something because I think I think they're just producing tons of work and because they tend to work the creators tend to work in the start stop model of six five issues, four issues stop and then come back six months to a year later. Nothing ends for a long long time. yeah and so you have a lot of stuff that is not technically. Technically, they don't have a lot of issues coming out every month, but they have t- tons of series that are still ongoing. So you have tons of ongoing series. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd say tons, because a lot of the things are, you know, sometimes these series do end up having finite endings. But we don't, we don't know about it. You, you end up thinking, like you said, uh, Autumn Lands. If, if there had been no stops in Autumn Lands between ours, which... The creators need to rest and they need to find some other work which gives them money. Fair is fair. Mm. Perfectly fine. But if they didn't have those stops, we might have, the series might have ended already. He might have decided by issue 20, well, the yeah. story is finished. And you can launch the angelic thing and nobody would say, wait, what? Which one is it? Which, which future animal society is this? Yeah. I mean, as it is, you know... I- And again, I don't know if this is a deliberate strategy on Image's part, because if it is, it would be clever. It might be that they are deliberately marketing these series to run during the periods where their you know, similar books are on hiatus. Mm. That would actually be really smart, because what you could do is, you know, you have an Autumn Lands run of six issues, or however long a storyline is. They go on hiatus, and then the Realm comes back from hiatus and does six issues. They go on a break... Autumn Lands comes back, right? I if they could think they do it like this because I don't either, they don't, but they I don't think manage their creators like this. It, it would be good for them if they did though. Mm. Or at the very least, you know, we you and I as reviewers, I think we sort of have this unspoken agreement that if there's an image number one, it's at least worth a look. Yeah. Unless it's by someone like Ray Fox, then we can pass. Oh, but usually please. like <laughs> You're you're very bitter about that. What what was it? I'm not Uh, intersect intersect yeah oh god hey did, did that you, you know what George end? Bush said did that series George, ever started hell if I know George Bush said fool me once shame on shame on you yeah. fool me you can't get fooled again uh, okay, so, okay. Here's, here's a point of interest Kingsman yeah. the Red Diamond number one of six it's a sequel series to the Kingsman comic which led to the Kingsman movie Mm. It's not by Mark Miller. It's by, written by Rob Williams with art by Simon Fraser. Now, this intrigues me. Not that I'm interested in it at all, but why do you think Rob Williams is writing this? Uh, because I'm guessing Mark Miller, who's probably one of the richer men in comics, not the richest, that would be Kirkman, but one of the richer men in comics is saying, well, we need to produce more stuff. Hey, mate, or whatever... Here's some money. You're pretty good at high-octane action stuff. Write this. And you'll be very famous because it's Kingsman and there's another movie coming out. And mm-hmm. Rob Williams is saying, of course, I like money because I enjoy eating food. Why yeah, not? but King... And it's, it's the type of story, tell you the truth, if the original Kingsman was a Rob Williams project, I would be far more interested in it because I like Rob Williams. I don't like Mark Miller. Simon Fraser Same. is a great artist. He's very different from Dave Gibbons. Like, that's a totally different style because Rob Williams can write if he wants to. Like it's a Mark Miller book, only not as stupid. He can, he can up the 
the scale quite a bit. Simon Fraser can't do a Dave Givens, I think. Mm. Um, I would agree with that. I also think that, well, first of all, Kingsman was creator-owned, right? Yeah, yeah. It was Miller's original book. Is this the first time he's ever handed off one of his creator-owned titles to another writer? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, no, all the Kickass I... stuff was by him. Uh... Yeah. That's why I thought it was weird. Like, Rob Williams is a better writer than Mark Miller, so that's, you know, the transition is fine for me. I just thought, like, it was so bizarre because so I remembered this... Talk during Miller World, which is still a thing apparently, about him starting a project for young writers to do one shots and, and such on his pro- on his stuff. So I don't know if he did that, and I don't know if he I, because I never read Clint. You remember Clint? Yes, I remember. Clint. Yeah, yeah, you remember that joke. Uh, I don't it was know. A, it I don't was know, about as appealing as the man brought in any new readers to work on that magazine, or was it all like old pros and friends of his? But if, if he is using his power and station within the industry to find work uh, to get, and to give money and publicity to people who, again, my opinion, are better than him, I'm fine with it. Yeah. I would gladly... Because <laughs> Kingsman is not a bad idea for a series. Like the young James Bond, only not as bad as the young James Bond TV show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not a bad idea for, for a series, and if you give it to talented people, they would give you good stuff, and Simon Fraser and Rob Williams are good people. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with your assessment on Williams, and I'm sure that whatever he's going to put out is going to be a thousand times better than anything Miller could manage. Um, it's just interesting. You know, I don't think, I can't think of too many examples where creators are willing to give up you know, creator-owned content to other writers. Rob and Liefeld. then, you know... Well, Rob Liefeld, though, like, pretty much everything would be an improvement. Uh, well, I wonder... I don't know. That's such an interesting question. Ellen Moore on the later Tom Strong stuff when it became... Right. Like, this Tom Strong universe, and he brought in lots of people to work on it. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. We'll see what comes of it. I mean, I, there's also the question of, you know, the film and how it's supposed to interact with that. I and... don't think it's because the film is called The Golden Circle and this one is called The Red Diamond. So, and the plot of this miniseries involves him trying to rescue Prince Philip. And from the trailers, the movie takes place in America with the Kingsmen finding, teaming up, fighting whatever with their American counterparts. We're all, of course... Cowboys, so it's a very different plot. Yeah. Uh, one last item of interest from Image, the Rat Queen special, Orc Dave One-Shot. Uh, Curtis J. Weeby, Tamara Bonvillain, and Max Jun- Dunbar are doing a tale of the delightful Orc Dave. And, you know, I'm happy that the series is still going strong. I'm glad that they're doing these one-shots to flesh out the side characters. Have you Orc read Dave the relaunch? I haven't. Is it is I it have good? been... I'll say this much. Um, the reboot so far, and it hasn't even finished the first arc yet, so it's premature to say for certain, but based on the issues that have come out, is it does seem like he's trying to get back to basics, which given that the series didn't even run that long, is not that hard a task, you would think. But he is trying to go back to the sort of essential, the, the camaraderie between the Rat Queens, and now they're competing with an all-male adventuring team, the Cat Kings. Mm. Which is funny. You know, there, there's potential for comedy there. So, 
it does seem like he swept all the excess emo stuff under the rug and we're ready for, for new a new approach. We'll see what happens. Uh, I just want to mention there's a graphic novel called Son of Shaolin written by uh, Jay Longino, who I don't know and drawn by Kenan White who is a very good artist. He did the Harlem Hellfighters graphic novel a few years back. Mm-hmm. And it's a kung fu epic set in the back alleys and subway tunnels of Harlem, New York. So it's uh, exploitation meets ninja exploitation, I guess. Which so those are two great tastes that always go well together. There is it's a very popular combination of things. Have you seen the uh, the Man with the Iron Fists, the movie? Well, no, but the first thing that came to mind was uh, um, what's it called? Afro Samurai. Uh, Afro Samurai. Uh, Damn it, I really like that graphic novel. The one about Romeo and Juliet as black ninjas. Yep, I remember that. I uh, forgot who uh, wrote it, though. Uh, not King of Cats. Uh, no, Something, I, something I, with Cats. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember. No, no, I think it actually Prince, was King Prince of, Cats. of Cats. Prince of Cats. Prince of Cats, Prince that's of the Cats, one. Which is a great graphic novel. So it, it's a very popular cultural combination all the way from the 70s, from The Last Dragon and such. And mm-hmm. it's a very good artist. I don't know the writer, but I think I'm going to give this one a shot. Yeah, it's worth a look, I think. Uh, Dark Horse, anything? Nothing. Nothing, okay. Uh, what else? Boom? Um, well, nothing new at Boom. You know, the, the good series are still continuing their work. Uh, there is something which is very curious. It's uh, early solicit for November. It's called mm-hmm. Bad Mask OGN, and it's written and drawn by somebody called John Chad. That's a name. Okay. Uh... It's a box of stuff. It's a box of newspapers, magazines, comic books, trading, trading cards, digital files, which create a story of a young girl called Gabby that joins an or- a terrorist organization called Bad Mask. Mm. So it's, it's sort of like stylistic experimentation. And they're talking about, they're mentioning Chris Moore's building stories. Which is one of those things which is so impressive in terms of craftsmanship and to me so terrible in terms of story. (laughs) Because it's so depressing. Like Chris Ward just writes like, oh, life is shit and life is shittier and life is even terrible and everybody's terrible in it. But oh, he can draw like hell. Mm. it's, It's a very interesting idea in terms of experimentation. The question is, is it just a gimmick? Yeah, I think it might be, actually. <clears throat> I mean, the way that it's framed, you know. It's it's interesting that Boom, out of all publishers, would do something like this, because Boom are usually very straightforward. They are, and but... And even more I, specifically, it's Boom Box, right? It's not, it's not the general Boom Studios. I mean, I've been worried about Boom's financial status for for almost a year now. You know, ever since they made that announcement where they cut down their miniseries runs and they they've been cutting back on the number of books i uh, there has been a talk about fox i think buying a share in boom oh that would be horrible well it, it is a thing that happens uh sean ha- sean hannity's getting a, a <laughs> comic book no ain't nobody got time for that uh idw it's time, Star Wars Adventures number one by Kevin Scott and Derek Charm. All ages Star Wars books, uh, two stories per issue. Now, there's something interesting going on here. The, according to the solicitation, the first issue is focusing on, uh, Ray. 
Now, there's also a Star Wars animated series that's coming out now that's focusing on the women of Star Wars. Have you seen that, those short animated clips? Uh, no, no, I haven't, but makes sense to do it, that. It's some kind of TV project, seems really interesting. I don't know if this book is directly related to that, but hey, go for it. Uh, not- the RDW is better at doing Marvel's corporate synergy than Marvel is. Yeah, well, we mocked them about that last yeah. episode. Like, you know, the, the fact that they supposedly hold the exclusive title and yet Disney, Disney, Disney owns Marvel and they trust IDW to do this job better than them. I mean, what more can you say? Uh, Samurai Jack, Quantum Jack, number one of five. It's mm. written by Fabian Renville Jr. with art by Warwick Johnson Caldwell. One, uh, Fabian Rengel Jr. just blows up. There isn't a single month where there isn't a new project by him announced. Yeah. And that's IDW. So he covers all his basics because he wrote for Albatross, Dark Horse. He has a Dynamite series coming out this week. And mm-hmm. IDW as well. And I think he already did some short stuff for Marvel. So he's trying to work for every publisher at once. I don't know. Challenging the dominance of Charles Soleil, maybe. <laughs> I do question uh, if, now that the series, after the long hiatus, had its final season, Mm. is there a place for a Samurai Jack story now, when when the story is officially ended by the official creators? I think so. I think what may have happened here is that you know, Samurai Jack, for the very long period that it was off the air, and Tartakovsky was always talking about, someday I'll get back to it, someday my prince will come, and it never really happened. And during that time, there were a couple of Samurai Jack comics that were coming out, but none of them were especially inspiring or whatever. I think now that the series itself, the core narrative is behind us, there's maybe sort of a... a a relaxation on the part of writers. Now that the series is done and Tartakovsky has said everything that he had to say and, and he's finished, now might be the time where writers can feel more comfortable in doing more experimental things. Because the last season of Samurai Jack that Tartakovsky put out has a, a substantial time gap. Yeah. It's what? It's like 50 years after the previous season or something like that? 15 or 50. Yeah, it's a long, long time. It's a long time. So, you know, there's a gap of time there where if you want to, you can go back and talk about, you know, the conflict with Aku and more views of this world or whatever. It, it could work. Hmm. Okay. A uh, couple of interesting collections from IDW. The first one, obviously, I'm going to talk about it. Transformers versus G.I. Joe, the quintessential <laughs> collection. Tom Scioli with John Barber on assist. And this is the complete Transformers vs. G.I. Joe series, including the movie One Shot, the TV adaptation, which I've talked about four or three months ago. One of the best comics of the year, one of the best comics I've read, period. It's a beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, 420 pages, $50. Another interesting thing is The Man from the Great North. That's an English translation of a Hugo Pratt graphic novel. Uh, Hugo Pratt is familiar... <laughs> as the guy who created Quarter Maltese, one of the great European adventure strips mm-hmm. during the uh, 60s and the 70s, I believe. And this is a separate story that takes place in the 1920s in Canada about a guy who's like a lone First Nations Mohawk scout, and he, and he takes the red coat, like because he needs a coat, and it's cold outside, and people mistake him for a Mountie. And it begins the sort of series of 
mistakes and chases and thrills. And Hugo Pratt is very good at this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of the European uh, Euro Comics division, and they do a they do well preserved stuff. When you buy their editions, you get like this big, thick book on super nice paper with explanations and history and what's the connections and why was this work printed this time. And it's usually they pick their stories very very well. They don't just translate <laughs> any old thing, so I'm there for that one. Okay. Anything else from... Uh, Not from IDW specifically, uh, what else you got? Okay, there again, there's lots of interesting graphic novels, and the bottom beneath all the Transformers and G.I. Joe and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff. Uh, Benjamin Reese has, has this graphic novel called Super Tokyo Land, which is a graphic memoir mm-hmm. about the time he spent in Tokyo. Uh, it's uh, $25, 232 pages. It's one of those concepts that can come out really well or just be super annoying and shallow. Oh, the Japanese, they are so weird. Yeah. I don't know who Benjamin Rice is. I'm just so interested that IDW would choose to publish something like this, which seems like a Fantagraphics project in the works. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. That was immediately what like what came to mind. And I know that IDW have been trying to sort of break out of that mold of they, focusing exclusively on... They do, on that's the thing. They do it all the time, but because their solicits are so long and they're usually 90%, not just Transformers and G.I. Joe, but alternative covers with Transformers and G.I. Joe, you have, to sc- yeah. you have to scroll down like 20 pages of stuff until you reach the more unusual, like... The Limbo Lounge from David Calver, which is another graphic novel about dead people in limbo who await their fate at a bar while surrounded by bored interlopers from hell. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting concept, but you, in order to find it, you have to scroll page after page after page of, of first yeah. strike number three alternative cover B, C, and D, uh, which we all, and I like, the Transformers G.I. Jones stuff, but even, you know, cut it a bit. Put put the more interesting stuff up front instead of in the back. Yeah, especially when you consider, and again, like this is a completely personal comment. I'm sure it's not going to apply to a lot of people. But speaking as someone who's not necessarily the biggest Transformers fan, I can't actually tell the covers apart. Uh, yeah. This is Megatron. This is Decept. Uh, this is uh, what's his name? Starscream. Optimus Prime. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, okay. Any other company? Uh, one last item from Oni. Made Men number one. This is by T- Paul Tobin and Arjuna Sassini. <coughs> it's another comic about a descendant of Frankenstein, which, to be blunt, after Victor LaSalle's Destroyer, I was really not in the mood for anybody else to bastardize Mary Shelley. But, you know, it is Paul Tobin, the author of Bandette, so I feel like maybe there's some merit here. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tobin has been hit and miss in the past, but... He's usually a hit, and even if... Yeah. Even if we, when he's a miss, he's not a terrible miss. He would never make something yeah. that's outright bad. Just stuff that's not as good as his great stuff. Uh, from yeah. Black Mask, one listening for me. Uh, Grave Trances number one. It's a new series about on a journey to track down their estranged father. Mary Bell and Anthony find their way to Melrot Cemetery, a strange, seemingly abandoned field of mostly unremarked tombs when they describe encounter an eccentric clan of grave robbers who use the human corpse to create a new highly addictive drug from human remains. 
Ooh la la. It's drawn by a guy named, and I'm not kidding, James Michael Why Not. Why not indeed? <laughs> That's a great name, yeah. And the preview art does look stunning in an Alexis Zirit uh, graffiti meets psychedelic sort of way, so I'm there for that one. Okay. And that's it for me in previews. Same. An interesting month, primarily for Image, I think. They have a lot of new titles that are hitting. Some of them may be a little too similar to each other, but we'll see how it works. Yeah. Uh, Shall we move on to comics, comic? Let's. What do you want to start with? Uh, The one we both read, Shirtless Bear Fighter number one. Okay. Shirtless Bear Fighter number one by Jody Lehup and Sebastian Gurner, art by Neil Vendrell and Mike Spicer from Image. I would like to start, Tom, Yes. by pointing out that the title is a lie. The bear fighter is, in fact, naked. Well, to be naked, as I said, you, you have to not wear a shirt. So, technically, he is shirtless. He's also, well, he's also pantsless and underwearless yes. and sockless, but he Just is shirtless. Pixelated junk everywhere. Yes. So, you know, that that's kind of a thing. Uh, and, you know, Shirtless Bear Fighter has a bear house and a bear plane. Bears are demolishing the city. The president won't negotiate with bearerists. Uh, bear Fighter accepts payment for bear fighting in flapjacks and maple syrup. He was born with a full beard and an enormous dong. Uh, this book is completely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And it works on that level. But there's a caveat here, and it's something that I, I'm so glad that we both read this because I wanted to pick your brain about this. I got to the end of the issue, and I felt like there was something missing. Usually in a comic this audacious, there's some kind of hook that keeps you reading, whereas when I got to the end of the issue, I was like, okay, I get the joke, I was amused, I'm kind of done right now. I don't really <laughs> feel compelled to seek out the second issue. I don't, I don't really feel compelled to actually read beyond the joke. Yeah, it's 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 a comic book version of one of those uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Sense uh, of Sensibility and Sea Monsters, where you read it and, oh, it's so funny, I get the joke, but you have nothing to add outside of the obvious joke. And it's it's well told for what it is but what it is is a very shallow gag and they don't really have any way to develop it so for instance yeah. when you do get to, towards the end of the issue and oh it's the bear plane it's supposed to be this moment of sublime ridiculousness but because by this point in the story even by page two they pretty much established that we're living in a cartoon universe where everything is possible yeah, there, and everything is bears. Yeah, there is no surprise. It's okay. Yeah, sure. It's the bear plane. Whatever. It's not more. It's not a funnier gag than seeing the aeroplane in the DC universe uh, story. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those series that basically tells you what it is from the title alone. Because what's it about? It's about a shirtless guy who fights bear. What's the style? It's about a shirtless guy who fights bear. It's not Shakespeare. It's about well, it's winter's. Which what was the one where bears are chasing someone off stage? Was it a winter's tale? It might have been. Yeah, Exiled Pursued by a Bear, one of the most famous stage directions in history. But it's, it's, you know, who's the hero? He's the shirtless guy. Who's the villain? It's bears. It's, what's the type of humor? It's shirtless yeah. bear fighter. It's, it's obvious and there's no, I'm not, I'm not angry that there's no like literary death. I'm angry that there's no humor death to it. 
it's pretty much what you expected and you're not surprised and humor is about being surprised to, mm. to a degree it's yep. it's not a bad story it's just like you said it's kind of mediocre and I don't really feel the need to read beyond issue one it's uh yeah I feel like th- this maybe could have been a one shot like you know what I mean yeah like uh, that old uh, what was it the image one shot sea bear versus grizzly shark you remember that one yeah something like yeah, that yeah because the Unless, I don't know, unless in issue two they have something completely new and audacious and some super clever gag. But Which I, I don't think that's the case because this title is, you know, it's Shirtless Bear Fighter. So it's like there's not some deeper, you know. Yeah. Uh, art's nice. It, it, uh, very Boom Studios. Clear, clean line, lush colors sort of way. Yeah. And it does manage to, like, straddle the line between sort of people cartoonish and bear cartoonish, where there's a scene of, like, the bear civilization. Yeah. But it's it's too much. I feel like there needed to be at least one other dimension or one other gag here that ran counter to that where you can build on it. Otherwise, it's just... Meh. Yeah. Just meh. Uh, your pick. What's next? I would like to talk about Crosswind. Okay, I did not read Crosswind. Please explain. You have missed nothing. This is Crosswind number one by Gail Simone and Kat Staggs, also from Image. Here we are with Gail Simone again. The last book of hers that we reviewed was Clean Room, which I don't think impressed either of us. I have not read Clean Room, so maybe it hasn't impressed you. I have not read it. Uh, ooh. I do. I distinctly remember reviewing it. Never mind. So, well, there you go, right? We can't even... Oh, no, that was... Uh, what was the one before that? That The name that we keep forgetting. Is it Effigy? That's that's not Gail Simone, though. Effigy is not a Gail Simone project. There was a Gail Simone book we reviewed. We, 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 can't we, reviewed we reviewed the new Secret Six like two years ago, but that's. Yeah. I think that's that. Anyway. So, but you know, it's Gail Simone's. I figured we might as well. This book is so bad, Tom. Really? It is awful. The writing... Okay, okay. It starts with a scene with a mob enforcer and a friend of his. The friend of his is saying, you know, I didn't snitch. You know that I didn't snitch. And then next panel, he's egging the guy into shooting him, saying, like, you know, I slept with your mom. Your dad was a loser. As, like, two seconds ago, you were saying... uh like you didn't want him to shoot you now you do uh this this woman is being harassed by her neighbor's kids with lines like i kid you not and i quote how about i come inside and you show me that fat ass or later on i got something big and hard just for you are you serious gail simone is this real dialogue and the woman's response is i'll tell your parents it is really like, what a train wreck. None of these characters are believable. This woman complains to her husband that like these boys are sexually harassing her and he's, he doesn't believe her. He's like, honey, my boss is coming for dinner. Please hurry up and get your head out of the clouds and do the damn job and get the work done or whatever. And it's so obvious that she is. Okay. So the, the big premise of this issue is that this beleaguered housewife and the mob enforcer are going to switch bodies. That's the big hook. That was the reason I picked it up. It sounded interesting. 
But my God, she could not have been more transparent in being like, look at how crappy this mom's life is. So that when the gangster takes over her body and the next time the kids harass her, she's going to beat the shit out of them. Of course she will. And the mom is going to be all sensitive in the gangster's life and she's going to fix things for him. I'm like, wow, so clunky, so awkward. I don't know what's going on with Gail Simone these days, but my God, this was bad. Oof, you're being, Not a, you're being brutal. Um, I, I'm, I wish I didn't have to be, but like, there isn't a single sympathetic character in this entire book. The husband is horrible. The wife is, is ridiculous. Like, I don't understand what her deal is. The mob enforcer is, like, tortured by the fact that he had to kill his friend, but his friend was, like, egging him on by talking about, you know, shoot me! I slept with your mom! Your dad wasn't a real man! Uh, whatever, she made me breakfast afterwards. I'm like, what are, What the hell is going on here? None of this makes any sense! Oh, trash. Uh, I, how, I just, how's the art? At least, Cat Stags is any good? Um, it's competent, I guess. It's not... You know, nothing special. Oof. Okay. Shall we transition to something good? Something Less. really good in it. Something quite excellent. Batman Elmer Fudd Special Number One, a one-shot, mm. written by Tom King with art by uh, Lee Weeks, and a second story also written by Tom King with art by Brian Vaughn. Not that one. Not the other. <laughs> not that one. <laughs> Uh, have you read any of the DC uh, Looney Tunes one-shots, Sean? No. Okay, so the big idea is that they all have two stories. A main one, which is set up and looks like a regular DC comic story. And then a second short, which is a lo- the Looney Tunes version of the same story, of the same team-up. So the main story, Tom King and Lee Weeks, is there's this Elmer Fudd. He's the toughest hunter around, and he and he had to work for criminals in order to pay his debts. But he retired from the world of crime, and he found a lovely wife. But then this lo- wife left him for you know who. That's if you say Bugs Bunny, I'm no, going to no, be no, no, really no, no, upset. No, 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 no. His wife left him from the scoundrel billionaire Bruce Wayne, and then that wife ended up dead, and he's convinced that Bruce Wayne killed her. He killed his. Former love, and he's out for revenge. It's, it's I'm, <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. I yo flabbergasted with, and, I, and all the way, you know, they're playing him as this really super tough customer. You know, he walks into the toughest bar in the neighborhood, and everybody's quaking in fear. But he still talks like Elmer Fudd. I am everywhere, almost certain everywhere quenches it. It's ancient no. fault. Oh God, no! Yes, it's. It, it's great. And the bar where he walks into, everybody is the human version of classic Looney Tunes characters presented as Gotham City psychos. So you have this Tasmanian devil guy as this pug who can only speak in, in the spit. And you have a Foghorn Leghorn as this pimp who like, I no, say, I no, say. No, no, stop, stop. Absolutely not. Oh, Foghorn, yes. no. No, I draw the line there. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm sorry, Tom King. Absolutely not. Absolutely, no. yes, Sean. It's, it's, a, it's actually a very nice story because uh, Tom King manages to set up the laughs with, you know, it's a ridiculous concept with the actual emotional impact of 
this guy is just really, really sad. Like, first thing, he loses his wife for another guy, and then he convinced, you know, this guy killed her, and he's out to get him. And it ends with an Elmer Fudd Batman, not a fight with a team up, where they try to find the real guy responsible for the for the murder. And by the way, Lee Weeks, I think he only drawn like two Batman comics in the past because he's an old, old timey artist at this point, like mm. years ago. It's super beautiful, Sean. It's it's almost it's almost like a Sean Phillip comic, like it's noiry and it's gritty. And all the characters have weight and scale to them. Like the fight, yes, the fight, yes, the fight is beautiful. Noir and gritty Elmer Fudd. That's what I need uh, in my yeah, life. You, yes. Well, I didn't know I needed it until I seen it. It's it's a great story. It's a super great story. And Lee Weeks, uh, right now, I don't think I've seen a better Batman artist than him for a good long time. I, I rebuke it in the name of the Lord. I, uh, you, well, Sean, I've read it and you have not, so you'll have to take my word for it. The second story, the car- <laughs> the, car- the cartoon story is more of a regular left-out riot thing. It's rabbit season, again, so Elmer Fudd is how to hunt Bugs Bunny, who insists that it's bat season. And when Elmer says, well, there ain't no bats, he uses the bat signal to summon Batman. And now, see, that's funny. And, and then they do the classic line with Batman playing the Duffy Duck role and keeps getting shot yes. over and over again. And yes, see, he, that's funny. And he insists that, you know, wait a minute, it's it's Batsy's and I'm not a bat, I'm Batman, and oh, it's Batsy's and fire. And he summons Calendar Man because he wants to prove to Elmer Fudd that this is not Batsy's. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote the backup? Mm-hmm. Again, it's Tom, it's Tom King. It's drawn oh. by uh, okay. something I Vaughn. Don't. Brian Vaughn, I think. Okay, so Tom in the future, not you, the other Tom. Tom King in the future, please swap these stories when you publish them. Because by- Byron, uh, not Brian. Because uh, your, your, des- your description of the first half sounds like something you read off fanfiction.net. Dark and gritty and noir Elmer Fudd uh, seeks vengeance for the death of his wife. No, absolutely and not. Since, and, uh, since, Elmer and since you're not going to read the one-shot readers for the next 20 minutes, spoilers, uh, the, the, the cartoon short ends with uh, Batman describe, deciding that now it's Robin season. Just so, El- <laughs> just so Elmer Fudd would leave him alone. Oh, excellent. And he summons all the various Robins. Wobbin season. See, that's funny. That's something that I would absolutely read. Okay. And I, but yeah, not so much the other one. So, um, I've got an interesting one for you. Okay. Sword Quest number one. This is by Chad Bowers and Chris Sims. Art by Ghostwriter X. I'm assuming not the ghost from the TV, the kids' TV show from the 90s. Art uh, is by from, Ghostwriter? By uh, Ghostwriter. Yeah. He does yes, the art. I was, I was as confused by that as you are. Uh, from Dynamite. Now, this is, I think it's the first issue of Dynamite's Atari brand. You remember this when they announced oh, this? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's comics based on really, really old video games. So here we are with Sword Quest, which, you know, I'm a reasonably knowledgeable gamer, and I have never heard of this. Now, mind you, that could be an advantage because it means the story starts with a blank slate. Bowers and Sims put out a very weird 
but very interesting story. What happens is there's uh, there are these pair of siblings, twins, and a friend of theirs who, when they were younger, were addicted to this game called Sword Quest, which is an actual game that Atari put out. And they were, you know, writing uh, homemade strategy guides and sharing secrets and playing together. You know, they were these three really close friends. And then there was a competition to uh, win certain collectibles, which video game companies did used to do this. I remember Nintendo marketed the first Final Fantasy by selling, like, replica crystal balls or something. They would do, like, these fan competitions or whatever. And one of the collectibles was an actual sword modeled on the sword in the game. Now, the twins sort of grew up and moved on with their life, but the third person in this relationship became really obsessed with the sword specifically. He started following it. He reconnects with the twins like 20 years later and says, you know, the sword is going to be on display at this museum of video game history and I need to get it. I need to steal it. It becomes very clear that this is someone who uh, his life has not necessarily gone down the right path. You know, he's sort of washed up and, and you have like a really sharp contrast of him versus the twins who are, you know, in these business suits and they're successful and everything's going well. And Amy and her brother are more, you know, put together, and Peter is just a complete mess. So they talk, they argue, and then we get to the end and we find out this this mysterious man appears and says, you know, you may not want the sword anymore, but the sword wants you. So I think I understand based on this issue and based on the solicitation uh, for Centipede that came out recently. Yes, there's going to be a comic on Centipede. I think I understand what Dynamite's doing here. They're basically taking the most basic iconography of the game and stretching it out beyond recognition. This is not a story that has anything to do with the quote-unquote narrative of Sword Quest. Let's, start, let's not forget we're talking about a 1980s game. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Most likely Golden Axe, like, you know, hack and slash or something. Older, even. Woof. Yeah. So, in that sense, I think what they're doing is they're using these games as sort of inspiration to tell different kinds of stories. And to Bowers and Sims' credit, this actually does kind of work. It takes this whole idea of, you know, the nostalgia for the games of the 80s and the the era of collectibles, which is mostly passed us by these days. These days it's almost all digital. So we've sort of moved on from all of that. But there's something at the core here, this idea of these siblings and their best friend and how their friendship sort of fell apart. And, you know, one of them be still is very, very invested in the game for some reason. I'm not going to spoil why, but he has sort of a an interesting uh, motivation for, like, pursuing this weird sword. Um, it's, I don't know where it's going to go, this whole thing with, uh, the man who shows up at the end and has this very strange conspiracy theory about the sword. Um, it, it seems like it could go in an interesting direction. It sounds so, like, like, uh, old Killstrike, which I remember you really liked. Yeah. Yeah. Playing with sort of metafictional boundaries and, and like using 
the source. I mean, I mean, the only real difference is that there was never a Killstrike comic in the nineties. Well, you know, Sword Quest Whereas, might as well be fictional for the amount of people today that know about it. If you don't know about it, it likely is that most readers under the age of uh, forty would have no idea what what they're talking about. I mean, it's possible. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Sword Quest is one of the big culprits of the video game crash of 1983. Might be. What my problem is, and the reason I didn't bother picking it up, is mm-hmm. that Seams and Bowers in particular, they have this tendency to ironicize their style, and everything is presented in sort of a weird distancing effect that makes it unappealing to me. It works with Seams mm. as a critic. I don't really, I haven't really liked anything that he wrote for comics up yeah. until now. I'm in the same boat, actually. I, I enjoy him moderately as a critic. You know, he does have a tendency to over-romanticize things that he's nostalgic towards. Oh, yes, yes, certainly. You know, uh, look at his work on X-Men 92. Look at his work on, you know, he, he was running a... Uh, uh, back when Comics Alliance was alive, rest in peace, Comics Alliance. But back when that site was active, he used to run an ongoing column that compared Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the series, to the Japanese series it was based on. And you, he would just like wax poetic about Power Rangers. And I'm like, dude, it was Power Rangers. Don't give it more than it is. Uh, it's, you know? it's fine to analyze things, but he does seems to be a very nostalgia goggles kind of person to a degree. Yeah. Or if not really, he created this image for himself, which he worked on very hard. Now, to be completely fair, I don't see any of that here. And I think maybe the reason for that is, you know, the Sword Quest series came out in 1982. I don't think Sims has ever played this. I don't think it's a nostalgic thing for him at all. He's writing about it. His era of, like nostalgic, pseudo-ironic appreciation is the 90s, not the 80s. So I, I think that this does work. Okay, so before we move on to the next review, I will ask you, Sean, right now, I'll put you on the spot. If Go you had it. to pick an Atari game for a comic book adaptation, what game would it be, and who would you choose to adapt it? Well, obviously, I would pick E.T. The video game? The video game. That's that's a bit of a cheat, but okay. I mean, how is it a cheat? It's the game that almost destroyed video games. It's a movie first. It's like saying, I'll pick the Jaws game, which, yeah, there was a game, but nobody thinks about (laughs) the game. Tom, the E.T. video game has about as much in... uh, uh, Let me rephrase that. The E.T. video game has about as much in common with the film as the video game Doom has in common with your life. Uh, okay. Putting the chainsaw aside. You know. <laughs> okay, so who, who would adapt it? Who would do the comic book adaptation of the video okay. game based on the movie? So you have to understand that from my perspective, when we talk about E.T. the game, we're talking about an artifact of pure evil, right? We're talking about something that nearly destroyed an entire medium in its infancy. The only person who could adequately depict the cosmic horror that nearly, that was very, very nearly averted would be Grant Morrison. Okay. Okay. You know, talking about the multiple layers of abyssal, multiversal, cosmic nonsense that this cartridge unleashed to the extent that they were buried and covered in concrete like something out of Lord of the Rings in a pit so dark it would never come to light. 
you know, and as far as I know, that grave was probably also cursed by Native American shamans so that it would never be opened. I don't know. There's evil in that, in that game. So, and the only person who could do it would be Grant Morrison. With Frazier yeah. Irving on art, I assume. <laughs> Him or Jim Yole? Okay. Uh, any, any, other, Steve any other comics or shall we do trade reviews? Let's move on to the trades. What have you got? Well, since we haven't talked Tom Does 2080 Classics for a while, uh, let's go back to that well, Sean. Go for it. Nikolai Dante, Too Cool to Kill, written by Robbie Orson. Oh my god, I can't believe you finally got to it! Volume 1, written by Robbie Morrison, with art by uh, Simon Fraser, with sometimes assists by Charlie Edlard and the great, great Chris Weston. Now, for those of you who don't know, Nikolai Dante, the hero of the revolution, is uh, an outlaw in the... In the future, future Russia, the year is 2666, something like that. And, year of the Tsar. And the old mafia clans have become noble houses, with one house in particular ruling over the whole of Russia, the house... Um, Makarov. Yes, and house Romanov opposes them, and Nikolai discovers that he's actually the scion, like the distant relative of one of, of, of the house Romanov, and therefore he has uh, special powers and special weapons that he, can, that he can materialize from his body. And he becomes sort of lost in all those noble machinations where he's just trying to enjoy life as it were. Because he lives in the gutters, but now he finds himself in front of the high society and he's not really used to it. And ev- pretty much everybody wants to kill him without starting a war between the two clans. Mm. It's a very good book, Sean. You, you've you've yes. talked about it forever. And I've read it in chunks, but finally I've got the print edition because, as, as I told you many times, I'm not very good at reading on the computer. Espe- That's fair. Especially when it comes to, like, longer stuff. Like, I read single issues, but not graphic novels. Mm-hmm. It's a very good book. Uh, it's super fun. It's in the classic 2008 edition. It's very inventive. Every five pages, something must happen. Like, it can never rest on its laurels. Uh, the art's great. Uh, Simon Fraser is very good, but I have real favoritism to the one chapter scene uh, drawn by Chris Weston where he, uh, he has to sleep with a member of the Rasputin clan who all have... <laughs> that all of them, all the, the mystical clan that all have beards, even the women... Oh, Nikolai. Uh, yeah, and he's, he's a good character. Like, he's a rogue. 2000 AD didn't really have many rogues. Like, they have clean-cut action heroes, and they have, like, bastards. They have, like, really evil folks in their leads. But they never had this guy with, like, a charming Robin Hood type, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Or if they had, it wasn't for a series that ran very long. And Nikolai Dante... Started, according to this, in Prague 135 and is technically still ongoing. There has no, been... no, no. It ended. There was one chapter in the 2015 Prague, the 40-year anniversary, so maybe it just was a one-off thing. So it's ended, you're saying? Uh, yeah, it, it's not canonical. Uh, the last Nikolai Dante storyline really did wrap up everything. I think it was at the tail end of 2012. Hmm. Somewhere in the 1700s. Um, but yeah, it's a complete story at this point. Oh, that's good. I like complete stories. 
Uh, some elements haven't aged too well, I think, uh, because there is a difference between... There should be at least a difference between like a charming rogue to someone who's just a sexist pig. And mm-hmm. in some parts of the story, reading it now from, you know, from the year 2016, and this started in what, uh, 95, 96, something like that? No. No way. Uh, really? I don't know. Uh, 1,035. I'm trying to think of the... Uh, 97. Uh, 97. 97. Yeah, yeah that makes more so, sense. Yeah, 90, 20 years old at this point. There are yeah. some points where Nikolai Dantes is not, you know, it's not like a charming guy. He's just like a creep. Like a guy some, um, some, sometimes. And yes, you know, models <laughs> for social behavior change a lot over the last 20 years. But there, it's there. It is there. And there's, there's, some, there's some gay panic jokes which are not very tasteful. Okay, so... Ooh, complicated. I... Honestly, I would disagree with that. I do think that... One of the things that I always enjoyed about the Nikolai Dante series was the fact that this character, in terms of how he's represented as like this adventuring swashbuckler who's having all of these crazy run-ins, right? He uh, kind of like a romanticized Robin Hood, but taken to a further extreme. And he's this hellraiser, but he's also, you know, developing this sort of long-running relationship with the Tsar's daughter, Jenna, Mm -hmm. and what's going on over there. So... He, one of the things that I always enjoyed about the series was that Morrison really did manage to toe the line in terms of making it risque and having him sort of take the James Bond approach with women without, first of all, without over-sexualizing the women, because it's never, you know, they're, they're, out there. they're never presented in the American superhero broken back position. They, exactly. They, they actually look like, and that's about, that's for the artists, right? That's for Frazier and Edlard and Weston. Yeah. The women look like... Reg- they look like actual women. They don't look like sex poses. Yeah. It's not a sex fantasy is the thing, right? It's not like something that is designed for male titillation, especially when you consider that, like, you know, Nikolai is going to get naked plenty during the, the series. Um, and, you know, so there's that angle of, like, not crossing that line into poor taste. And also... You know, he is a very sympathetic character. He's someone who is fun to read about, especially when you consider, you know, we've talked in the past about protagonists of long-running 2000 AD series that you're familiar with. You know, Johnny Alpha is a very interesting character, but I don't know that I would ever say that he's fun. You know, he's not a fun character, but he is an... He's an, a compelling character. He's someone that you... Whose adventures you want to follow, but the guy is... You know, he's kind of a drag. Wolf was always the comic relief yeah. in that pairing. And then Wolf at some point gets taken out. Yes. And then who do you have? You have Feral, right? What is Feral good for? So there, there is that sense of, you know, he's a fun character. It's an adventurous story. Granted that the series goes to some very dark places over its run. I think the sum total is, it's 11 trades, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, very, it's a pretty long running series. It was a long-running series, and I think, for the most part, Morrison executed the entire run, in my opinion, almost flawlessly. Uh, if you get into the later... The, the first book isn't really indicative of the highlights of the series, but I do think the one thing that it's really good at is the world-building. Because this version of like future Russia that has taken over the world, and it's this weird mix of 
like it's got high science fiction. It's got all these bizarre technologies, the weapons crest, the flying warships, aliens running around everywhere. Really like this hodgepodge setting. Yeah. That's really interesting. But at the same time, it's also right. Political manipulations of noble houses. It's got a little bit of Dune, the whole idea of, you know, genetics and, and, uh, uh, manipulating bloodlines and all of that. So. There's a lot going on here. And I think like Morrison, to his credit, pulls it off almost effortlessly. I, I have always thought that this was the best thing he ever wrote. Yeah, well, so far, there isn't much competition. Like, Robbie Morrison, poor guy, he's always the other comics Morrison, I think. Yeah. Uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. He did, <laughs> he did some really fun stuff. But this one, again, from trade one only, seems to be the highlight of his career so far and what I really like is it starts with Nikolai Dante as this fun loving bastard but when the story starts to draw to a close when the first trade starts drawing to a close and he faces up with the fact that all those noble people that he now he now is part of the world they don't give a crap about people like him they would yeah. they would gladly slaughter thousands and millions just to make a political point to score off one another and he starts mm-hmm. to develop this, you know, he has this pitch, I will raise an army of whores and prostitutes and I will rise against you one day. Yeah. And so there is pathos to it. It's not just fun. It's, it's also the drama is real. No, absolutely. There's a very strong dramatic component. You know, people die here in these stories. And, you know, it, it gets heavier and heavier the closer you get because it's clear that, you know, the, the tension between... Uh, the, the two families, right? The Makarovs and the Romanovs, something very dark is about to get unleashed. And the family that Nikolai finds that he now belongs to are not good people. And blatantly so, right? Yeah. So it, it is really interesting to see how this story begins with all this body modification and these aliens and, uh, and, you know, and on top of all of that, Nikolai Dante is running around having sword fights and, you know, fighting elephants and <laughs> just, like, really insane times. Yeah, so there's this really wonderful scene in uh, towards the end of the book where he accepts three duels at once, uh, four duels at once even. Yeah. And the first one is just the guy, you know, Nikolai saying to him, please explain to me the rules of the duel. And he's saying, the duel starts once you step into the ring and then Nikolai just stabs him. You know, fine, okay, we, you're in the ring now, did, is it? It's, it's, it's so charming and entertaining, and it's like the best of 2000 AD yep. in, in presentation. And I'm going to read the whole thing now. It'll take a while, but I will buy and read the whole thing. And I'm really looking towards the middle volumes, because that's when the great John Burns comes in as an oh, artist, yeah. and I that's... love John Burns, like... That's the war storyline. That's one Ooh, of the like, John Burns doing war story. Yeah, I'm definitely there now. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. So fantastic! I'm so glad you liked it. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of later volumes because it really does. It's one of I think one of the most interesting and compelling worlds that 2000 AD ever created. And I'm always sort of, you know, Morrison ended it on a perfect note. But there's always that part of me that says, you know. Come back, do it again, in spite of everything. But, you know, sometimes you have to know when to let it go. I also have a very brief trade review. Okay. And I have to start with Mea Culpa, Tom. 
Okay. I did not think that I would ever say the following sentence. What an utterly delightful DC book. I am speaking of Super Sons, the first five issues by Peter Tomasi, art by George Jimenez and Alison Borges. Tom, what fun. What fun. Since when is DC fun? I don't know what this witchcraft is, but... It's John Kent and Damian Wayne squabbling and working together and having these insane adventures. And I was so skeptical because, first of all, I don't even know who John Kent is. There's all of this multiversal nonsense right now going on with Superman, and I don't understand or care to understand any of it. But you sort of have to make that jump of, okay, Clark is married to Lois. They're living in some farmland somewhere. They have a son named John who has Superman's powers. Whatever. I'll take it. We talked last episode about, you know, just be willing to accept different versions of characters. Fine. And he is, of course, the sort of very dry, considerate, sympathetic boy who wants to do the right thing all the time. And he constantly finds himself teaming up with Damian Wayne. And I have to give Tomasi credit. I... For many years, ever since he was introduced, I've had a problem with Damian Wayne, which is that he's a very polarized character because some writers interpret him as being just this irredeemable, irritating brat who you cannot wait to get out of your face. Just someone who is deeply annoying. Or other character, other writers have sort of poked fun at him, at the fact that he's super serious when he doesn't need to be, and that there's sort of an amusing side of him being sort of pouty and, you know, like childish in a way, because he is a child, in like his inability to understand, like, socialization. Mm-hmm. And, and he has sort of ping-ponged back and forth between these two extremes without anybody really managing to find a workable balance. And I think that Tomasi may be one of the first writers who figured out where that sort of sweet spot is. He's not, you know, Damien is not too unbearable here, but he's also not too sycophantic. He's right in the middle of being the perfect foil for Jean. He's a rule breaker. He's like, my dad can beat up your dad. And, you know, all of that, bringing in the the obvious rivalry on top of it. And they complement each other so well in terms of their personalities and their abilities. John is insulted because Damien hasn't invited him to join the Teen Titans. And then Damien's like, you're not a teen. So are you, are you 13? And I didn't know. It's just really amusing the way that these characters interact. And I did not think that a DC Rebirth title could have that kind of organic interaction between characters and be so amusing, so hilarious, so just fun in terms of, you know, Alfred having to take care of both of them now and then they're constantly moving back and forth between these two families, right? And they're teaming up, and they're dealing with Lex Luthor, and, and I'm pretty sure, I don't remember exactly what the line is, but Damien's like, you can solve kryptonite poisoning, but you can't cure alopecia. And I... Was it, you know, like, is there, a, is there an ongoing villain? Is it Lex Luthor, or is it just like small personal stories type thing? Well, as far as I can tell, the villain of the first arc, and this is also like, again, because I'm coming into it blind and I don't have any previous context, I'm assuming... This is uh, a follow-up to a previous storyline, something about an amazo virus. Okay. I don't know. I, 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 I have no idea. 
Yeah, but the villain of the story seems like a one-off. I, Lex Luthor is really more there as like a guest star, someone for them to overcome. I really, I they, really would have loved it if they would have brought back uh, Luthor's uh, young nephew, like uh, Natasha Luthor, something like that. Uh, they might. <laughs> like, because that, I mean, that's we... the most obvious thing. I don't know. Natasha Luthor and Dola Dance, the Joker's daughter. <laughs> but they, they're too old, I think. Well, like, yeah, it's, it's got to be someone who's versus kids. That's who hates who hates people. You know, who hates teens more than kids who are too young to be teens, and who's more embarrassed by kids? <laughs> Because I imagine like uh, young Luther and and the youngish Joker lady, and they're so embarrassed by the fact that they have to fight kids. They're they're saying we want to fight Batman and Superman, and they're those kids version keep bothering us. Leave us alone. We want to fight the big ones. <laughs> But that, that's just I also, me. Uh, I'm not really surprised it's... I haven't read it, but I'm not surprised that it's good because Tomasi is this type of writer who understands how to write superheroes like right down to the middle and he knows <laughs> how to shift his style if he's writing a tragedy or if he's writing a comedy or if he's writing something that's fun because yeah. he did wrote Batman and Robin, the post uh, New 52 version for quite a long while and he had, I only read a couple of issues He had to write the issues after Damien died during the Morrison uh, Batman Incorporated. And he, was uh-huh. doing, and he was doing a really good work in showing the tragedy of it all and how Batman can't deal with it. But still saying, you know, it's not a real story. It's part of a superhero universe. So Batman goes to Frankenstein, the shade version of Frankenstein, and mm. saying, bring back my boy to life. I know you can do it. Which is... Ridiculous, but it's ridiculous in the right dramatic fashion. Yeah. There's something... And I also have to give credit to the two artists. Uh, issue 1 to 4 is Jorge Jimenez. Um, issue 5 is Alison Borges. Uh, they managed to draw these kids as kids. There's something like... I don't know how to explain this properly. There's something cute... about the way John and Damien are drawn, even when they're not being cute. But, like, you know, John having the Superman t-shirt and cape over a pair of torn jeans, and Damien always looking super dramatic, but, like, with a bigger head than normal. Like, superhero companies in general, they should have more kids' book than is books with kids as superheroes, because, hey, that's what kids love, and that... should be your target audience. We've talked about it before, I think. Yeah. You know, you know like this... readers like us should be the outliers, not your major focus. Marvel, uh, bring back Power Pack. Why don't you... I wouldn't... You belong to DC. Why don't you have a Power Pack ongoing right now that's stupid as hell? I wouldn't even go that far. I would say, like, reading this, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Young Justice, the, the original Peter David series, Ooh. which was this comedic... You know, everyone, you know, it was Superboy, it was uh, Impulse, and it was Robin, and they were getting all these kids together and having these really funny jokes, right? We always talk about the first villain of Young Justice is Nina Endowed, the mighty Endowed, yeah, whose, superpower is, uh, whose superpower is boobs. And it, but that's it's not funny. might be the best joke for your kid-centric book no, right off the bat. I, but obviously yeah, not. Peter David, you know, um, God bless, he loves his... He loves his terrible words. It's a pun. Do you remember he had a whole... Yeah. He had like 
four arcs about the two FBI agents who follow them around and they're called Fight and Mad because they're fighting mad. <laughs> Except they're not really fighting mad. They're just like two completely normal guys. And yeah, sure. Like, who names their son Fight? Who names their son Mad? Like, with three A's in a row. Nobody, but he just had to make that pun, right? Because Peter David... He had... He had that pair of vigilante called sax and violins. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. You know, so, yeah, okay, he likes his puns. But what I'm saying is, you know, the tone of that book at the time, now this was the 90s. The 90s were not, you know, in spite of Nightfall and No Man's Land and all that time. The 90s weren't, I think, as persistently and relentlessly dark as the, as the mainstream uh, big two are these days. So it was such a revelation for me to read the story and be like, these are characters who can be written as having senses of humor, who can squabble like rival friends. Like, I haven't seen a relationship like this since uh, Connor and Tim back in the old Young Justice days where they would fight and argue about everything, but they had each other's backs, right? Like, it's a sense of genuine friendship uh-huh. and of camaraderie and of, and you know, these kids... Uh, going out and solving, obviously, like, it's less idealistic than you would think because, you know, John is the bright-eyed idealist and Damien is just like, I'm going to solve all of the crimes and prove that I'm a better detective than my father. But when he says it, you're not meant to sympathize with him, you're meant to laugh at him because he's so over the top that it's funny. I think, you know, when he was introduced, people weren't really doing that at the time. A lot of writers take Damien at face value. And I'm like, no, if you want this character to be effective, you have to have him talk like a member of the League of Shadows and have everybody else laugh at him because he's so socially awkward. It feels like it's a good period to have the inverse. Of, you remember when everybody used to do, you do the article like, Biff, pow, comics aren't for kids anymore? So we should uh-huh. do the inverse right now. It's like, hey... Beef Pow, comics are for kids. Again, you can read them. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only caveat that I would place here, and I'm being like super, super cautiously optimistic here. You know, my policy is to drop a book if it crosses over into anything. So far, based on solicitations into September, Super Sun seems to be a standalone title. I urge DC to stay that. I think, I think they would. They have, if nothing else, they know what books should be standalones and shouldn't cross over because Super Sun's potential readers aren't interested in metal, and they and no. they wouldn't and they wouldn't want to read metal, and and the people who do read metal most likely, most of them don't really care about Super Sons. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Like you know, you have to have and and I'm so glad that Tomasi seems to understand this, right? It is okay, it is completely legitimate to have some small corner of your universe be walled off, well, I say walled off as if it's that dramatic, it's not that dramatic, to have a patch of content that can be lighthearted and fun without necessarily, you know, most of the scenes in this book take place at night, there are some imposing visuals, but it's never something where, like, you know... Uh, a friend of theirs has to be violently murdered or an arm needs to get ripped off or you don't need any of that. That's not really necessary here. It can just be these two kids who 
barely get along unless they have to, right? That's like the winning formula is that these two are constantly laughing at each other. John thinks Damien is a pretentious moron and he's insulted that he won't invite him into the Teen Titans. Damien thinks that John is like a mama's boy and completely useless and is constantly mocking him for the fact that he can't fly. He can only jump really high. So he's like, why don't we fly there? Oh, I forgot. You can't. You know, Damien can be really passive aggressive when, when writers remember that that makes sense. And it's just delightful. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm in it for the long term. I'm going to stick with this book for as long as Tomasi's on it. Okay, that's good. I'm, I'm glad we're, ha- we're ending on a happy note for both of us. Yes. Uh, so that was the smorgasbord. I'll remind mm. you once again that if you like us, you can find all episodes on Sequart, Sequart.org, which is also on Patreon. And if you enjoy our work and Sequart's work, you should probably give them some money. Some of it will come back to us one day. <laughs> and if you want to talk to me, I am on Twitter at Tom Shops and Sequart's on Twitter. You can call them and, you know, I don't know. They'll put us in touch if you have something very important to tell me. And Sean is not on Twitter. You can send him a magic pigeon if you are so entitled. Light up the Sean signal and I will be there. So, I'm Tom Shapiro. And I'm Sean Idry. Until next time. Bon appetit.